Let's turn in our Bibles back to the book of Psalms as we continue our journey there together. Psalm 116. As we continue to look through the Psalms together. And Father, we just want to humbly pray as we turn the pages uh, of our Bibles that, Lord, you would just do what's necessary internally in each and every one of us to give us a sensitivity uh, to your Holy Spirit and that we might have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular section of your word that we study together this night. And we ask expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Psalm 116 is where we pick back up this evening, and as we said last time together, uh, these psalms that we're looking at here from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, this group of psalms are referred to as the Hallel Psalms or the Praise Psalms, and they were known particularly to be used during the time of the feast day celebrations of the nation of Israel. So as they would make their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, particularly for the major feasts, Passover, uh, Pentecost, Tabernacles, these three required feasts, they're all Jewish males, 20 years old and above, were to be in Jerusalem for, to bring their families, if possible, to gather together. Uh, these were psalms that were particularly used as songs, as they would make procession up to Jerusalem, as they would be celebrating the week-long uh, festivities, they would use these songs to sing ultimately to the Lord, which is kind of somewhat interesting because we're told in Matthew chapter 26, as well as in Mark's gospel, that after Jesus, remember, was uh, partaking of the Passover meal with his disciples, it tells us that then Jesus uh, sang together with the disciples a hymn and then went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, I would have loved to uh, have a recording of that to hear Jesus's voice singing a hymn. Uh, and some believe that it was very likely one of these six psalms here that Jesus perhaps may have sung uh, that's being referenced there. So these psalms certainly would have a special place in his heart as well, not only because he sang them knowing that he ultimately would be come the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb of God, but no doubt as a young boy with Joseph, with Mary, as he would be brought up to Jerusalem with his family as a God-fearing home to worship the Lord, uh, these would be very, very specific psalms, and many of them have a lot of messianic undertones, as we'll see in them uh, as we've been looking at them together. Psalm 116, you'll notice, does not give to us any human identity as far as the author. Of course, ultimately, we know the Holy Spirit is the author of every psalm as well as every part of the Word of God. But uh, here we're not told which human author was used to record this particular psalm, but it opens up with a declaration of the psalmist's love and devotion towards the Lord. He begins by saying, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice, my voice and my supplications. Because he's inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. Now, I love how the psalm begins, I love the Lord. What a great declaration to show that what God is concerned about is not religious duty. It's not going through the motions of a religious lifestyle where we're you know, fulfilling certain requirements uh, and doing certain rituals, but that God's foremost concern is relationship, is intimacy, is personal connection, just like the human relationships that we have, that we want a degree of intimacy and, and to experience relationship with another person. And again, remember when Jesus on one occasion was asked which of the commandments was the greatest, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And Jesus spoke about this very reality that the thing that mattered most to him, to the Father, was that we would love the Lord with all of our hearts and that we would have a love towards him. And I love how the psalmist here just openly declares, I, just, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. And I hope your heart can resonate with that, that you can say in regards to your experience with the Lord that it is personal in that way. That in the same way you can say, I love this person, I love my spouse, I love my kids, I love my grandkids, 
that you can say, I love the Lord, that you would just have a, that kind of devotion in your heart. And of course, the psalmist mentions some of the reasons why. Tell us why. What are some of the reasons why you love the Lord? Well, he says, first of all, verse one, because he has heard my voice and my supplications. In other words, because he's listened to my prayers. I love the Lord because he's always attentive to what's going on in my life. He's always got an ear to listen. He's always aware of what's happening in my life. And, you know, I think that's something that does make the Lord so very appealing because it's not always going to be the case that we're going to find somebody who's willing to listen to us, maybe even who's available to listen to us. Or even more than that, maybe they can listen to us and they're willing to listen to us, but they don't even understand or they can't relate to what we're experiencing, maybe mentally or emotionally or whatever's going on in our life, but to know that God knows us intimately, that he understands us completely, that he knows us in that way. And the psalmist says, one of the things I love about the Lord is he hears my cries, he listens to my voice, I can talk to him about whatever's going on in my life whenever I need to, whether it's just sharing my concerns with him and being able to just pour out my heart and have somebody that I can just kind of, you know, vent to, or whether it's to give to him my requests or my concerns, Lord, I need help with this, or Lord, there's this area that I have a need in my life and to seek God for his help or his provision or protection or power or whatever it may be. And he says, not only does he listen to me, but he says, verse two, he's inclined his ear to me. The idea is to pay attention. That is, that is, he actually, in a very concerning way, kind of leans in and he takes notice of what we're saying. And we all know, too, that sometimes you can find someone who will entertain listening to what you're saying, but it's kind of just going in one ear and out the other, or you can tell they're just kind of giving you, a, giving you their attention in a surfacey manner, but they're really not listening or hearing anything that you're saying, right? And the psalmist says, one of the things I love about the Lord is he says, he not only is, is listening, but he's paying attention. He inclines. The idea is to lean in. The idea is he shows interest. He's actually interested in what you're saying to him. And he's concerned and he's acquainted with exactly what you're trying to say. And he says, therefore, in light of that, I will call upon him as long as I live. I'm going to continue to call upon the Lord because I've found that he is a faithful listener, that he is a friend, that he's there for me whenever I need someone to speak to. And then he begins to describe, it seems, some of what was going on at a particular time in his life, maybe that caused him to record some of these things. He says, verse 3, the pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol, and Sheol was the considered the place of the dead from an Old Testament perspective. They didn't have complete light that you and I do, unfortunately. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that light in regards to immortality and what happens after death, that's come to us through Jesus Christ. We have a much more clear understanding of what happens after death. But to them, uh, Sheol was just the place of the dead. So when they use that term, that's the referring to. He says, the pains of death were surrounding me. He said, I feel like that, that death had a hold on me and that I was going down, that my life was coming to an end. So some very difficult experience. And he says, I felt like the pangs of Sheol were laying hold of me, pulling me down into the grave. I was going down. It seemed that it was over. He says, I found trouble and sorrow, so here he is in this very tragic situation. He's got trouble. There's great sorrow and grief. It seems like that he's about to die, that he's not going to make it. The idea is he's in a very distressing situation. And what did he do? Well, he did what the wise thing to do is, knowing that we have a God who listens to, is concerned about, and comes to our aid when we call upon him. He says, therefore, I called Upon the name of the Lord, O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. So he did the wise thing. He cried out to the Lord. He asked God for help and for rescue. Reminds me of what Peter did as he was sinking. Remember, Peter started walking on the water, and then ultimately as he took his eyes off of the Lord, and he looked at the wind and the waves, and he saw the storm. It was at that moment. It says he began to sink when he got his eyes off the Lord and upon the storm, and when Peter started sinking, wasn't a long prayer. It was a desperation prayer. Lord, help. 
And how wonderful that that's all we need to do just to call upon the name of the Lord. I mean, look at verse four there. Oh, Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. According to my count, if you count O as a word, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words, correct? Eight words. Not a long prayer. And the psalmist is going to say, and he answered, he came to my aid. You know, sometimes I almost feel like we almost feel like we need to build up in our prayers. You know, it's almost like we got to start getting kind of like a, a spiritual momentum going before we can really tell God what we need to tell him. And I think sometimes it would be wise for us, like if Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tells us, that we would stand in, in all of God and we would draw near to the house of God with a sense of reverence in our heart and realize we're approaching the throne of a king. And you don't even have to be wordy when you approach a king, right? When you're approaching a king, typically you're probably going to let your words be few and you're going to get right to your business, right? If you had access to a great king, you're not going to go into a king's presence and mumble and stumble and, and just ramble, ramble on with words. You're going to approach his throne and you're going to present your request. And he's either going to act or he's not going to act. And I love how the psalmist in just sincerity, he was in a moment of desperation. He didn't have to get all you know, hyper-spiritual and say all these terms and phrases. He says, I just called on the name of the Lord. Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Please, Lord, just deliver me. And I think so often sometimes we can make more of what prayer than what it really is supposed to be. And I wonder and sometimes if, you know, again, and I certainly perhaps forgive me for saying this, don't want to speak on God's behalf, but I do wonder once in a while if God's just looking upon us as humanity saying, would you just get to what you want to say? Would you just ask? And I do wonder sometimes as well, and I say this just as a way of sensitivity and praying together collectively, which is different than praying individually, that when we're praying together collectively, I do wonder, do people actually pray as long as they do collectively in front of others when they're praying privately at home? The psalmist's prayer is very short. When you look at Jesus' prayer in the New Testament, that's the Lord's Prayer, John 17, right? Read John 17. It takes about 90 seconds, and that was Jesus' public prayer. It wasn't on and on and on and on. It, just, it was just direct, specific, sincere requests. And here, I just love the sincerity. To me, that's genuine prayer, right? Just genuine, honest communication. Lord, I am in a desperate spot. Deliver me. You know what that means, Lord. Please come to my aid. I'm begging you, deliver my soul, he says. And verse 5, he says, gracious is the Lord and righteous Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. He says, I was brought low, and look what happened. He says, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And he's going to say in the next verses of how the Lord delivered his soul from death. So clearly that simple prayer, the Lord answered it. Just a simple, straightforward prayer, and the Lord intervened, just like with Peter. Lord, help me. Jesus didn't say, Peter. I mean, that wasn't very spiritual. Couldn't you quote a Bible verse or two? He just reached right in, and all Peter had time to say was, Lord, help me, and Jesus answered his prayer. He heard what he was asking. That was all Jesus needed to hear, the specific request, and he got him out of that situation. And this psalmist has been answered in his prayer request, and the Lord has delivered his soul, verse 8 says, from death and his eyes from tears. And so therefore, he's thankful to the Lord, and he begins to express that gratitude in verse 5. He says, gracious is the Lord. Aren't you so glad that those people sometimes were not always real gracious with one another, that the Lord is always gracious to us? He's so kind and merciful, he says. He's righteous and merciful. In verse 6, he says, and the Lord preserves the simple, the idea is, is the, the one perhaps who's not so sophisticated, the simple individual, not necessarily the, the one who doesn't you know, have intelligence. But the idea is just the, the pure-hearted, the unsophisticated, just, just the common Joe, we might say. You know? And he says, thankfully, the Lord preserves the simple. 
that if we're not, you know, people who are, you know, in some ways greatly sophisticated and savvy, that the Lord looks upon us and, and he preserves us, he helps us, he meets us right where we're at, he preserves the simple. So it's okay to just be a simplistic person, to live a simple life, to walk with God. In fact, you notice how many times the Bible almost always seems to be trying to bring us back to simplicity. When you read verses like, you know, Micah chapter 6, where there the, 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 the writers, what do you want, God? What do you require? What do you require? And he says, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. And then he just says, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Simplistic. He's shown thee. Do justly. Do what's right. Love mercy. That is, love God's mercy for yourself because sometimes you're not going to do what's just and you're going to fail. And just, just love taking God's mercy because you're going to need a lot of mercy because you're going to fail once in a while. And he says, and love mercy because you need to love showing mercy to others because they're going to fail too. And then he says, and then just walk humbly with God. Just simple, just walk humbly with God. And so many times we read in the New Testament as well, similar verses. You know, we saw in Psalm 27 where the psalmist said there, you know, one thing I desire of the Lord that I may seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. When, when Jesus was speaking there with Martha and Mary, as, as Martha was busy and distracted, remember, with all kinds of serving, and, and Jesus looked upon Martha and said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about, what did he say? Many things. And then Jesus says only one thing is needed, simplicity. Mary's chosen the better part. What was she doing? Just sitting at Jesus' feet. She was just simply enjoying the Lord. She was really doing what verse 1 says. She was just loving the Lord. She was just a simple-hearted woman who loved Jesus and walked with Jesus. And so often the Bible seems to kind of uphold this for our healthy spiritual life. He says, the Lord preserves the simple. If you're just a simple person tonight who loves Jesus and walks with him in a relationship, you're on good ground. The Lord preserves. He, he keeps by his power the simple. And he says, I was brought low, but he saved me. And then he kind of gives a little self-talk to himself, which is a good reminder that it's okay to do this once in a while. Verse 7, he then says to his own soul, look, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now, when the psalmist is saying to himself here, return to your rest, O my soul, I would venture to say the reason he's saying that is because his soul probably became restless, Right? When you think about what he's describing up in verse 3, the pains of death are surrounding him, closing in. Death is closing in. The pangs of Sheol are trying to bring him down. He's got trouble. He's got sorrow. Usually when that stuff's going on, you're restless, you're disturbed, you're agitated, you're all upset. Right, And the Lord heard his prayer. He intervened and did something to show his faithfulness, to help in the situation. So now he turns to his own soul and he says, okay, soul, now settle back down. Stop being so agitated. Rest again. Again, why? Because God wants us to be in a relative state of peace at all times. You know, the, the Bible only says, there, there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. So one of the downsides of being someone who lives wickedly and doesn't live for God, you're always restless and agitated and irritated and you have no sense of peace and restfulness. One of the great blessings of being a child of God is God gives to us peace, peace in our soul. And he wants us to live in a relative state of peace. Our peace may get disturbed once in a while by things that happen and then we get all restless and sometimes, you know, we lose our peace because maybe something's not the Lord's will, and that's his way of kind of giving us a check in our spirit and waving the red flag, saying, nah, this isn't me, this isn't me, that's why your peace is disturbed. But, but when God intervenes and works in such a way, his heart is always to bring us back to that condition of rest within our soul. Remember, Jesus spoke about that in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus said, Come to me and, and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly heart. He says, take my yoke upon you. And, and he says, and you'll experience rest for your soul. Not a physical rest, an internal rest, a rest for your soul, which is your emotions, your mind, 
everything about your internal being. Jesus said you can be at rest. And it's the blessed privilege of the child of God. And so here the psalmist, he's, he's kind of encouraging himself. Look, why are you still restless, he's saying, soul? Return to your rest. And he says, here's why. The Lord's dealt bountifully with you. And, and truly, the, the Lord has answered his prayers. And he says, wow, that, the Lord's been gracious to me and merciful and righteous. He's dealt bountifully with me. I should be at rest because it's well with my soul. may not be well with everybody, but it is well with my soul. And for all of us, I think as we look at verse 7 there, if we were to be honest, that is true for all of our lives. The Lord has dealt bountifully with many of us in our lives. He has blessed us. He has gotten us out of messes. He's got us back on the right track. He's done wonderful things. He's answered prayers in our lives and done things. And I think sometimes, you know, we're upset, we're agitated, we're discontent, we're always striving for this and miserable because that hasn't happened yet. And the Lord just says, what are you doing? <laughs> and sometimes it's almost like we have to remind ourselves, you know, self-talk, return to your rest. The Lord's dealt bountifully with you. That's a reason to, to be at peace, to just be content and blessed, to appreciate how bountifully God has blessed your life and blessed my life. He then speaks of some of that in verse 8. He says, Lord... Speaking first person now, you have delivered my soul. One of the ways God had dealt bountifully with him and one of the ways he's dealt bountifully with many of us who are Christians this evening. He's delivered our soul from death, from eternal death and damnation. He's set us free, delivering us through the salvation of Jesus Christ. He says, you've also delivered, notice verse 8, my eyes from tears. That is, he's dried our tears. He's taken us through times of grief and and God has healed and brought us to the other side. Lord, you've also, he said, kept my feet from falling. That is, he's protected us from stumbling at times when perhaps we would have walked right off a cliff. And sometimes, right, we are heading towards a cliff. We're going in a direction spiritually in our life, and we are walking right towards the cliff. Or we're teetering on very shaky ground, and we're doing things on a slippery slope, and the Lord intervenes and preserves us. And he, and he gets us back on, put, on stable ground again spiritually, and, and he's kept our feet from falling. He says, therefore, Lord, because you have done such things. Now, this is his response in gratitude and love. Verse 9, he says, therefore, look, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So, Lord, because you've dealt bountifully with me, because you've, you, you've, you've taken away my tears and my grieving. Lord, you've got me on the other side of the grief and the mourning, and you've healed my broken heart and, and helped me to overcome those emotions. And Lord, you've kept my feet from falling and delivered my soul from death. Therefore, Lord, I'm going to walk before you. And the walk before the Lord, the idea is to walk in his presence, to walk in his sight in the land of the living. Lord, I'm going to live in relationship with you as a way to express my gratefulness to you. And then verse 10, he says, and I believed and therefore I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So in some ways, again, he was dealing with great affliction and pain in his life. And notice what happened during that time of great pain and affliction. Verse 11, he says, I said in my haste, now he's kind of acknowledging this was something I once said in hastiness that I admit now that I should not have said that was wrong. All men are liars. Now, it's very likely that perhaps the psalmist went through an experience where maybe he was betrayed, right? Maybe his being greatly afflicted, maybe the sorrow that he was going through was maybe he was bitterly betrayed by someone who lied to him. That's a very painful experience, right? When someone lies to us, deceives us, does us wrong by betraying us in some way. When people maybe you know, aren't, aren't forthright and honest with us and we find out they were hiding something from us or whatever it may be. And, and, and sometimes when we're greatly afflicted and we go through a painful experience, when we're going through something hard in haste, we kind of then make a blanket judgment that's probably a little bit out of balance. And so that maybe the psalmist was, was lied to and hurt bitterly by someone who lied to him. And he says, and in my haste, I just said, you know what? Everybody's just a liar. Everybody. You just can't trust anybody, every human being. And maybe the psalmist kind of did like we do. That is it. I am not opening up to anyone ever again. That's it. I'm shutting off people. Nobody's hurting my heart. And 
And, and in his haste, he kind of overreacted, as sometimes we do. And a lot of times when we go through a painful experience, one of the mistakes we make is instead of responding, we react. And when we are hurt and we react, sometimes we over-dramatize a legitimate situation and we say something, not just, that person lied to me. That person bitterly betrayed me. That person wounded me. Instead, we make blanket assumptions and conclusions. Everybody's a liar. You can't trust anybody. Don't open up to anybody. Don't get into relationships with anybody. That's it. I'm just going to isolate, separate, pull away from everybody because then I won't be vulnerable and nobody can ever hurt me again. Or I have seen many, many times over when people go through a painful experience or a traumatic situation where they can do this. So for example, I've seen many times where let's say someone was, was hurt or wounded. Maybe a female was hurt or wounded by a male. And so then all of a sudden, just every male is automatically guilty. They're just automatically, if you're a male, you're automatically guilty because some man hurt me. And listen, I'm not diminishing the pain and the trauma of that, but that's an exaggeration. It's not healthy. And the psalmist says here, in my haste, I made a conclusion that was a little bit too severe. And he says, and I realize now, he says, that was in my haste. That wasn't correct. I, I let that situation get the best of me. And so I just want to you know, say to you this evening, be careful. If you've allowed yourself to do that, it might be good to, to step back and to reevaluate the situation and, and don't instantly just generically make everyone guilty in a particular category because of something painful that's happened to you. You know, I've seen this happen many times in relationships. I've watched, you know, spouses be punished for the duration of years and years and years in a marriage because of something that happened to the other spouse at some point in their past or in their childhood or in prior years. And I understand it affects us, but it's not fair for us to punish someone else the rest of their life. It's almost as if you have to prove you're innocent because you're automatically guilty. And we have this tendency to do this as humanity. And I think the psalmist kind of brings this to light here. He says, you know, I was greatly afflicted and in my haste, and I realized that was a hasty reaction. I just said, everybody's a liar. And he kind of regrets afterwards that that wasn't true. That wasn't fair. He says, verse 12, but what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? So how do I responsively show God my gratitude? I, I want to do something. God's the initiator, right? He, he blesses us. He renders benefits in our life. So he says, what can I give back to the Lord? for all his benefits towards me. He says, verse 13, I will take up the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. So again, uses this analogy of the cup of salvation. The idea of to, a cup is that which you would drink down deeply from. So he says, I will drink deeply from the Lord's cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. You know, I think of how verse 13, perhaps if Jesus were singing through this psalm as they were celebrating the feast, perhaps as he was in his own mind, thinking about how one day he was going to drink of the cup of salvation. As he's going to drink of that cup, remember when Jesus was praying, talking to the Father, he's, he used that very wording and analogy. Father, if it is possible that this cup could pass, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And there he was speaking about drinking the cup of the wrath of God, so that he could give to you and I the cup of salvation. Jesus drank the cup of the holy, righteous wrath of God against the sin of the world, all mixed in one cup. He drank it and swallowed it down so that he could extend to you and I the cup of forgiveness and salvation and to offer it to us. And perhaps I can wonder as Jesus was maybe familiar with these and in his humanity thinking about this as he's hearing some of these overtones in these scripture verses of what his life was all about. He says, verse 14, the psalmist, and I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of his people. So I want to keep my commitments to the Lord. If I've made a vow, if I've committed something to the Lord, I want to follow through. I want to be faithful and I want to do it in the presence of his people. In verse 15, he then says, and precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, we may look at that verse and think, well, why does that just randomly show up in there? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Well, perhaps very likely as a way of balancing out 
the graciousness of God and the faithfulness of God to hear and to answer prayer and that he always does listen and incline to our prayers because what did the psalmist say up in verse 3? He said, Lord, I'm about to die, and then he implored the Lord, and apparently the Lord spared him from what? Death. So the psalmist says, when death was knocking on my door, when I was about to die, when it looked like I was going to be drawn down into the place of the dead, I prayed and God chose to answer and spare my life. He chose to keep me from dying. But it's almost as if the psalmist says that may not always be the case when people are about to die. He says God also sees it as very precious when people are permitted to die. So it's almost as if he wants us to understand sometimes we may pray and as it's in alignment with the will of God and the plan of God and for the glory of God, God may spare someone from death. So maybe it's us in our illness or maybe it's someone we're praying who's close to the doorway of death and God may intervene and heal and miraculously deliver and praise the Lord. But then there may be other times where someone may be in a place where death is knocking on the door and they may pray for God to spare their life or others may be praying and God may allow them still to die. And this is almost as if the psalmist wants to say, look, it's not as if somehow God was being partial to one and, and, and not caring about the other or listening to one person's prayer, not listening to another person's prayer because he says God has a perspective on death that we need to keep in mind, and that is this. It is just as precious in the sight of the Lord when it's the death of his, notice that key word, saints. And that word precious there is a word that means valuable, special. So God sees it as a valuable, special thing in his sight when there is the death of one of his saints. Now, that's hard for us in our humanity perhaps to swallow sometimes because for us on our end, it's painful. It's painful in our sight. Lord, why would you not have spared their life? Lord, the pain, the heartache, the separation, the grief, the, the struggle it's going to cause to all connected to that person. Lord, Lord, I, it doesn't make sense, but we have to realize that God views everything from what? Not a temporal, but an eternal perspective. And so from God's sight, if someone is genuinely a child of God, a saint, one who is ready to enter into the presence of the glory of heaven, the Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You know, I just read a devotional this week, actually reminds me of this very statement here, John chapter 17, verse 24, when Jesus was praying, Jesus said this is a part of his prayer when he was speaking to the Father, John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, prayed, Father, those that you've given to me as my followers. He says, I want them to be with me where I am, that they may see your glory which I've been enjoying for all of eternity. So to some degree, it's fair to say sometimes as we're praying, Lord, keep this saint here, Jesus is saying, Father, bring the saint here because I want them to see the glory. I want them to be with me where I am to experience my glory because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because God knows to be absent from the body is to be instantly present with the Lord. It is that moment when God gets to ultimately remove the final barrier between us and our relationship with him. Death is that final removal of the last thing that separates us from being completely in the presence of our God, to fully enjoy his glory. And so God has a different perspective. He doesn't see it Often the way that we do, he sees when one of his saints passes in death, God sees it as the moment of their reward. He sees it as a valuable, beautiful thing. It's hard for us, but God says it's giving to them what I've been longing to give to them. It's so precious when it happens for their sake. Verse 16, he says, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. 
and you have loosed my bonds. That is, you have set me free, Lord. You set me free from that thing that was restricting me and holding me back. And you know, sometimes the Lord wonderfully does that. He intervenes with his power and he doesn't just save us from the penalty of our sin, but he sets us free from the power of sin from slavery, from things that keep us in bondage. And, and again, whether that is something that we're involved in, maybe it's something that we're in, in a relationship with. And, and sometimes the Lord says, you know what? That is bondage for you. So I'm going to loose you from that. I'm going to set you free. And the psalmist was grateful to be set free from what he was enslaved to so that he could be a servant of the Lord. And sometimes things that we are enslaved to are what keep us from serving the Lord, because Jesus said no man can serve two masters. And so if we're enslaved to something and we're in bondage to something else in our life, it's can what keep us from being a servant of the Lord. And he says, Lord, I'm so thankful to serve you that you've loosed me from my bonds so I can be your servant. And I will offer to you, he says, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And sometimes it is not a sacrifice to thank the Lord. We may not feel like thanking the Lord, but he says sometimes it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving and we'll call upon the name of the Lord. He says, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, there where the temple was, the people of God gathered in the courts of the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord or hallelujah. Well, Psalm 117, buckle your seatbelts, it's a long one, as you can see. The shortest psalm in the Bible, and here's what's interesting too, it's the shortest psalm in the Bible, and it's a bookend to the longest psalm in the Bible, which is Psalm 119. So Psalm 118 sits right in the middle, and Psalm 118 is bookended by the shortest psalm in the Bible, on the left-hand side of our pages, and then on the next side, on the other end, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, which is just perhaps a supernatural reminder that God says some things can be said very simply in a short matter of two verses. Other things take a tremendous amount of words to say. And there's a time and a season for both. Here, God says, Psalm 117 Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Now, here it's a call, notice, to praise the Lord. And it's not a call to the Jewish people, but he says, all you Gentiles. Laud him, that word laud means to boast loudly of, he says, all you people. So here the psalmist is putting out the invitation beyond the people of Israel, the chosen people, the Jews, to all the Gentile peoples of the earth, that is, people from other nations as well. And so he says, come and, and praise the Lord. And again, just this reminder, because oftentimes the Jews' biggest mistake was they, they failed to realize that though they were to be a light to the Gentiles and they were not to be entangled with the ways of the Gentiles, they were still to be an influence upon them, that it was always the heart of God to not just reach the Jewish people of Lone. The Bible says salvation is of the Jews, to the Jew first, but then also to the Greek, and that God wanted to reach all nations. Paul, in fact, quotes this very verse here in Romans chapter 15, speaking about how God's heart has always been for the whole, what did Jesus say? He, God so loved the world, the world. God began among the Jews, but the Jews were always to bring light to the Gentiles so that all peoples of all nations, and important we realize that. You read the book of Revelation, you see around the throne of God, people worshiping God from every tribe and tongue and kindred, and they're all worshiping the Lord. People from all different languages and nationalities worshiping him together. And he mentions reasons why he should be praised. Verse 2, for his merciful kindness. That's that, that has said there. That is that the, the, the loyal love of God. That's the Old Testament phrase there where we would often use the New Testament word grace. Praise the Lord for his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. So the psalmist says, hey, we should always be praising the Lord. All people should because he's really kind, he's really gracious, and we can trust what he says forever 
and ever. And his message will not change, nor will the meetings of those things. Psalm 118, he declares, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 2, he says, Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord, that is including all peoples, again, the Gentile nations as well, say his mercy endures forever. So just like Psalm 115, where the Lord said to the nation of Israel, and then to the ministers, the house of Aaron, those who did ministry in the works of God, as well as then encompassing all those from all nations that would fear and reverence God. There he said to trust the Lord. Here he reminds those that the mercy of the Lord endures forever. You notice that word endures there, if you have the New King James way in the translation, might be in italics. And whenever you see something in italics, that's usually an indication that the translator inserted that word in there to try and give further clarity, that it's actually not in the Hebrew text, but there to try and give more understanding. So really it may say, in essence, three times, his mercy forever, his mercy forever, his mercy forever. Doesn't that sound wonderful? <laughs> his mercy forever. That is, man, I have blown it so many times, Lord. His mercy forever, forever. God continues to be merciful in how we all realize we need lots and lots of mercy from the Lord, and you can't exhaust his mercy. Don't ever forget that. Verse 5, the psalmist says, I called on the Lord in distress. So much like Psalm 116 here, the psalmist is in a distressing time. And the Lord answered me, and he set me in a broad place. Now, the idea of a broad place speaks of rather than walking on a narrow place, narrow footing where you could slip and fall. The Lord put me in a broad place. He's saying, the Lord shored up my footing. Or you might say, I called on the Lord in distress, and he put me in a safe place. He heard my cry. He put me back into a safe place. And then he says, I realize, verse 6, the Lord is on my side. You might want to underline that because it's a great reminder the Lord is on my side. You know, if you're one of his children, God's heart is favorably disposed towards his kids. Romans chapter 8 tells us, if God be for us, who can be against us? And sometimes, you know, when you feel like nobody's got your back, or you feel like everybody's turned their back, you can always know the Lord is on your side. He's on your side. He's got your back. He wants your best interest. He's there to support you and stand beside you and behind you. He says, the Lord is on my side. And notice the psalmist says, knowing that diminishes my fears and my anxieties. Because a lot of our insecurities are because we feel so alone and, and insufficient and incapable. But when you know the Lord's on your side, it really tones your anxiety down quite a bit. And he says, Lord, there may be things that could make me anxious, but when you, with you're on my side, I will not fear. And look what he says, verse 6. What can man really do to me? What can man do to me? Nothing unless God allows them to, right? The Lord's a great bodyguard. He's a great big brother. He's a great father. He, he's not going to let man do anything to you outside of his will or permissive allowance. So he says, the Lord's on my side. I don't have to be fearful. I don't have to be anxious and nervous. What can man really do to me, he says? The Lord is for me among those who help me. So he recognized at times when people would help him, it was actually the Lord being the one behind that and prompting people to bring help into his life. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. Verse 8 and 9, great verses, and I'll tell you why in a additional moment. He says, it's better, notice, better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Boy, is that a great truth? It is better to trust in the Lord, he says again, repetitiously. Why does the Bible use repetition? Emphasis. Don't miss this, God's saying. Don't miss this. I've said it twice, God says. Better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Princes would be those who are rulers, 
those who have great power and position, those who can do things for you. The idea is like going to the politician who can make things happen. They can grease the gears. They can open doors. I'm going to go to that person. They have power. They're a mover. They're a shaker. And he says here, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in any man, and it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in what any person who's a mover or shaker can somehow do for you to work on your behalf. Here's what is very interesting. Verse 8 and 9 are actually the center point of the Bible. So when you take the Word of God, and I don't know who spent the time to do it, so I could be wrong, but studies have, you know, different people have kind of taken the time to go by verses, chapters, whatever. Apparently, they say, and it could be wrong, you can check and fact check me by the time you figure it out, we'll probably all be in heaven, but they say that verse 8 and 9 in Psalm 118 is the center point of the Bible. What an interesting center point in the Bible that God says this is the central thing. If you could just get this down, it's better to trust in the Lord than in people. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put your trust in people. Boy, what a great central message God wants us to know. Verse 10, all nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, the psalmist says, I will destroy them. I'll overcome my enemies. They shall surround me. Yes, they surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees, like a attack of bees coming around him. They were quenched like a fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Almost sounds like the, the language of David there when he went up against Goliath. And it looked like there was no way he could have victory, but David said, but in the name of the Lord, you come against me with sword and spear and, and great power and resources. But David says, but I come against you in the name of the Lord, our God. And David knew that with God on his side, it didn't matter what enemies surrounded him, who looked like they were going to overcome him, that he could be victorious and destroy his enemies. Verse 13, he says, you pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord Help me, and the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So notice, verse 13, he says there, notice this in the singular, a personage, you pushed me violently that I might fall. Who pushed him? I don't know. Perhaps it was a person. Maybe it was the enemy of his soul. Maybe it was Satan. When I look at verse 13, I realized that sometimes that's what Satan likes to do. He likes to give people a good violent shove to try and get them to fall spiritually. And perhaps here the psalmist recognized that you pushed me, and maybe the devil's been pushing you, pushing you to some attitude or pushing you towards some temptation or pushing you towards some sin, and he is pushing and pushing and pushing because he wants to get you to fall, to fall spiritually. And sometimes that happens because spiritual warfare is a reality. The psalmist says, you pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord helped me. He kept me safe. He protected me. He kept me from falling. He came to my answer. And how wonderful to know that we can put on the armor of God, that we can resist the devil. The Bible tells us in James, we can submit to God and resist the devil and that he'll flee from us. And the devil may push us and try and make us fall, but ultimately we can stand because the Lord is the one who helps us. And that's why he says, verse 14, Lord, you are my strength and you've become my salvation. Certainly that's exactly what God did for us in Jesus. God himself became our salvation. So the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Notice, not even the house of the righteous just the tents. The righteous just need tents. Why? Because we're not here long term. <laughs> because we realize that reality. We can realize, hey, we're pilgrims. Just give us a tent. The tents of the righteous. And we can still rejoice because we don't rejoice in what we have materially. We rejoice in what we know spiritually. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The idea is brings the victory, the right hand of strength. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. He declares in faith, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. 
and the Lord has chastened me severely. The idea is he disciplines at times. The psalmist said he's recently disciplined me, but he's not given me over to death. So he was severe in the chastening, and he says, I, I needed that, but he didn't destroy me. He didn't give me over to death, but he did let me de experience a degree of chastening. And you know what? For all of us, the Bible tells us, does it not, in Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he disciplines, even as a father does his son that he cares about. And because the Lord does love us, he's not trying to destroy us, but sometimes he will severely chasten us. And the, the severity of the chastening is to get us not to carry forward or on any further in the self-destructive path. Because, see, if he didn't chasten me, guess what I would do? I would walk over the cliff. I'd kill myself. You'd ruin your own life. But because he doesn't want us to experience that, he will chasten us severely to awaken us, to get us back onto a right course in our life. The psalmist says, verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness, perhaps thinking of entering into the temple as he went up to Jerusalem for the time of worship of the feast. Open to me the gates of the righteous. I will go through them and praise the Lord. I'll enter into the temple and begin to celebrate and worship the Lord, entering into his gates with praise. This is, he says, the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, he says, for you have answered me. And again, he says, become my salvation. Now, boy, do those verses not speak beautifully, again, of what Jesus did and became for us. Jesus became our salvation. He brought salvation to us. That's what his very name means. Jesus means Yeshua or Yahweh is salvation. God himself became our salvation in the person of Jesus, doing what he did for us, living sinlessly, dying sacrificially, overcoming death, and then becoming the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, in touch with divinity, in touch with humanity, able to give us through faith and relationship with him access to the Lord. And isn't it interesting, he talks about here, open to me the gate of righteousness. This is the gate of the Lord. And one of the things Jesus referred to himself as, as was a door or a gate to the sheep. And he says, whoever enters through me will be saved. And so the gate certainly of righteousness really through which the righteous enter is entering through Jesus who's become our salvation. And speaking of Jesus, look at these great prophetic statements. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected, he says, has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, the cornerstone, understand, in, in ancient building, the cornerstone was the most important stone. We might call it in our minds today like the foundation which was very essential to everything else being built upon and being built off of. They would lay the cornerstone first, and then everything else in construction afterwards was built on top of and off of the cornerstone. So everything was measured off of the cornerstone. And so the cornerstone was the essential stone if everything in the building was going to be sound, if it was going to be stable, if it was going to last, if it was going to be structurally able to support what his intended purpose was. And so the, the, the cornerstone was essential. So for a builder who's trying to build something properly to reject the cornerstone, everything else they build is going to fall apart because it's not built off of and upon the cornerstone. And it's interesting that spiritually using that analogy, Jesus himself quotes this very verse from uh, Psalm 118, verse 22, referring to himself in Matthew 21 and Mark 14. Six times this statement is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus himself refers to it, referring to himself as that chief cornerstone, which the builders rejected. Who were the builders? The religious leaders among the Jews. They were given the opportunity by Jehovah God to build the spiritual life that God intended for the nation to then be a light to reach the Gentiles, but they failed as builders. They built incorrectly because they built off the traditions of men and all their little legalistic rules and rituals. And what do they do? They rejected Jesus. They cast him aside. They wanted nothing to do with the cornerstone. They were trying to build their own religious system. 
And Jesus says, this is what they've done. I am that cornerstone which the builders have rejected. But notice verse 23, this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Because even that very rejection was all a part of something that God himself had orchestrated and allowed, and it brought about the marvelous path of salvation whereby Jesus ends up being crucified, our sins are atoned for, the resurrection of Christ comes to pass, and even the rejection of men, God used it to bring into play the very eternal purposes of God of salvation to fulfill prophecies and scriptures about our Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus being this cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that was rejected. Peter refers to this statement in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, where he talks about their rejection of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 2, he talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Paul himself alludes to this statement as well in Ephesians chapter 2. And again, it is so important for us to realize that that is who Jesus is. He's the chief cornerstone to our lives personally and our spiritual lives, which means this. Everything in my spiritual life, if it's going to be built properly, should be measured off of the person of Jesus. Not off of a church, not off of other Christians. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So I am to measure everything in my spiritual life off of relationship to Jesus. That's how you build a healthy spiritual life. As a part of the church, Jesus is the foundation through which the church is built upon that he builds, but he's the chief cornerstone. Not a particular movement of churches, not a philosophy of ministry, not some personality. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And when we build upon that chief cornerstone, we build well. When we don't build on that chief cornerstone of Jesus and we try and build on other stuff, we're doing things wrong. And things are going to get off track and out of balance, and oftentimes they end up crumbling in the process. But yet here, the Bible reminds us that even this very rejection of Jesus was something that the Lord was doing and how marvelous it was. And I love that statement, this is the Lord's doing. The idea is this is something orchestrated by God. And how wonderful when you can sense something is the Lord's doing. And you can kind of just discern this is the Lord. As crazy as this is, and crazy as that was, they were rejecting Jesus. But sometimes when the Spirit of God is doing something, you can say, this is orchestrated by God. This is this, The Lord's doing this. The Lord is doing this. And it's a marvelous thing when you can sense the Lord is the one doing something, bringing it to pass, and orchestrating what is happening. He says, verse 24, and this is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, that statement is true generally. Every day is a day the Lord has made, and we should rejoice and celebrate in it. But contextually, what he's referring to is the day of the Lord here, the day in which our Lord entered into Jerusalem and presented himself as the Messiah. That was the day the Lord had made, and they should have been rejoicing and being glad in it. Verse 25 he speaks about the triumphant entry. Save now, I pray, O Lord. Send now prosperity or success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and has given us light, that is, clarity to see. Bind the sacrifice with the cords to the altar, or the idea could be bring it with cords up to the altar, the place of sacrifice for the offering. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. And then he again concludes with thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Now, notice verse 25 and 26 as we conclude, because again, that is a statement there about the triumphant entry of Jesus. When Jesus, on the day of the Lord, presented himself to the people to rejoice and be glad in him, and verse 25 Save now, or Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord. Again, that statement is what is quoted when we read in the Gospels of what the people were saying when Jesus, remember, was on the donkey and he was riding into Jerusalem, presenting himself on the exact 
day, calendar-wise, specifically that Daniel 9 prophesied that he would enter in and present himself as the Messiah. And the people were proclaiming, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that very statement, which is written here, was intended to be used to worship Jesus at that moment. And sadly, sadly, many weren't even recognizing because the next moment they're saying what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And remember even the religious leaders, how angry they got when the people were saying, Psalm 118, save now, blessed to you, come in the name of the Lord. This is the Messiah. And the religious leader said, you need to stop your disciples from saying that. That's blasphemy. How dare they use those messianic claims towards you? And Jesus said, if they don't keep worshiping me, the very stones are going to pick up the tomb, tune and lead the rest of the worship song. You know, what a great reminder of how utterly blessed we are to get to worship Jesus. Jesus said if that day, if they would not have praised him, there would have been a literal rock concert, no pun intended, because the rocks would have started worshiping. Let's stand together. You guys are troopers. I wanted to finish through that section there so we could start Psalm 119, but let's have the girls come and why don't maybe one or two of you, if you feel led to pray, why don't